Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. from the church in India and some information to share with us. So just want to encourage you to listen and enjoy what God is doing in our sister church. Good morning, church. Uh, Erika, if you can run that small video clip. So if you look this video... This boy was born as a cripple, no movement, he can't speak, and uh, now he's getting bigger, and he's just uh, next door to our church in India, and these people, they are not believers, but at least for one month, uh, this boy's parents start asking our faith community team for prayers. So, the point to show this clip is that how we pray for if someone asks for prayers. We know that God can still heal him, but maybe at this point, either they, are, they, are, they don't have faith, or maybe our faith is weak. But we can change our prayer by doing something. So, we bought this wheelchair, now his parents can put him and take him outside, walk around. Before that, he was just sitting in the back room, and they can't pick him up, bring him outside. And this wheelchair cost uh, almost $100 according to, in, in dollar money. But his parents, all together, doing labor like 10 hours a day, his father makes $100 a month. So it wasn't in their vision or thinking that they can do for their son. But thank God, with the prayer of the people of Faith Lakeside and our team back in India, we were able to do this. And as a believer, wherever we may be, someone we have to think like uh, how, how we can pray for the other people. So we can pray to the God and we have to do something. Other than that, the situation is uh, really bad in India. I shared in uh, our leadership team today early morning, in one particular area, I don't know why it's happening that bad, in the southern part of India, 300 pastors died because of COVID. And there are so many families, their children, they are orphaned now. So uh, we even trying to start orphanage as soon as possible. Maybe we cannot have 10 children, but we can have at least two to start something with it. So please keep praying for this, our mission in India. And uh, all together we can do more because the Bible says one will chase 1,000 and two will chase 10,000. So let's keep praying. Thank you very much. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Steve. 
it's an important reminder for all of us that um, everything in life is spiritual in the sense that we can, we can serve, we can meet needs. You know, a wheelchair doesn't seem like a very spiritual thing. Shouldn't we be doing like Bible studies or, you know, um, anointing and praying? But, but this helps them to understand the love of Christ, helps them to understand what life can be. And so uh, this is a valuable thing in your own life as you pray for others. Also be looking for those, those small opportunities to meet a need, to give them real and abundant life uh, as a reflection of what Christ has done for you. So thank you, uh, Pastor Steve, Brother Steve, for all that you do and for, for leading the way in ministry like this and reminding us that it's stuff we can and should be doing as well. So uh, thank you so much for being here today. It is a privilege to be sharing God's Word, to be sharing time together. Uh, looking forward to the coming months. Uh, I encourage you guys to be praying for the church in India as they consider uh, opening up an orphanage, even for just a couple of children. And there may come in days uh, and ask uh, for you to consider sponsoring or helping to support a child in the orphanage there in India if it moves forward as anticipated. So just be praying for that and, and seeing what God would lay on your heart. Other things, really excited coming up. 1829 is this next Friday night, so everybody in that 18 to 29 age group, you're welcome to join us. We'll be doing breakfast for dinner, and um, so bring your favorite waffle topping or breakfast side dish. We'll, we'll have waffles and pancakes and, you know, some of the other stuff. So, And uh, we'll also be discussing chapter 3 in our community book, so encourage you to join us. And we've also got <clears throat> our regular Bible studies and other stuff, and be in prayer for us as your leadership team as we work out the details of what our planned Sunday school launching this fall will look like, and we'll be getting more information to you as that gets closer. So thank you so much for joining in. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to open it up to the Gospel of Mark as we continue to look at what Mark has to say to us uh, regarding the Christ, the Son of God. So Remember that as we look at this gospel, the one thing that Mark is wanting to remind us of, to teach us, to really have us grab a hold of as he shares the story of Jesus' ministry um, from the perspective of Peter, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is also not just a man, but he is also God incarnate, the Son of God. And so Mark really wants us to grasp that. And last week we had the privilege of looking at um, the beginning, that first moment of the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist and partaking of it together and remembering the body and the blood of Christ given for us and what Jesus accomplished in his body to pay the price for our sins, to live a righteous life that we might be clothed in his righteousness. And we were reminded of the blood and how it is the contract, the new covenant, that whoever believes and confesses will be saved through Jesus. That contract is sealed with his blood. And it's also the means by which the guilt of all of our sin is removed. And so communion should have a special place in our lives as individuals and as a body. And as we continue, we're going to see the last little bit of 
the Passover meal, the communion meal that Jesus and his disciples partook together in that upper room. And, uh, and then some other stuff is going to unfold. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 42 today. Verses 26 through 42. Or if you've got your uh, phones and your Bible app, be sure to just find today's event. And you should be able to follow along and scroll through for the most part. I didn't change much from when I uploaded the sermon into the, the app. So... If you will, just read along uh, silently as I read out loud. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 26, it says this, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So we watch this unfold, this continuing story of the last night of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And after this Passover meal that Jesus has taken the bread and the wine from and changed those elements into something unique and significant for his own followers He then dismisses the disciples, they sing a song, and then they go out to the Mount of Olives. Now, this was a normal practice at the end of the Passover meal to sing one of the Psalms together, to celebrate together the work of God in freeing the Israelites from slavery under the Egyptians. And so it's not uncommon to end with a hymn. And it's kind of like us ending the church service with a song and then saying, all right, everybody, see you next time. And uh, that's kind of the same feel that we see here. And they went out from Jerusalem. Remember, it was traditional to have the Passover meal inside the walls of the city in Jerusalem. And they did so in that upper room that likely belonged to Mark's family. And they went out from there, uh, out of the gates of the city to the Mount of Olives, which lies lies just outside of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You can kind of see from here, this is a really blurry picture uh, looking from the Mount of Olives back toward 
Jerusalem, and kind of right smack dab in the middle, underneath that sunlight, is the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim mosque, which sits on the same mountain, the same area that the temple did in Jesus' day. And so it's just a short distance outside of the city, still able to see the temple, still able to experience the commotion of Passover night, of all that's going on in this Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus and his disciples are heading out to the Mount of Olives. And as they're walking out, Jesus says to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is to come. Because there are some experiences that are right before them that are going to be unnerving, and that are going to be kind of scary. And he is not so much condemning the disciples as he is warning them of their frailties. He's telling them, I want you to expect to fail. That this is part of your story just as much as Judas betraying me was part of his, just as much as this sacrifice on the cross is going to be part of my story. Your story, what God has ordained for you, what's laid out for you, is that you will all fall away. And that, those, the, the words there, fall away, it's really uh, kind of not just you're going to walk away, not just you're going to be a little discouraged, but really it is you will stop following, you will take offense at what's going on and, and even me, and you will choose to sin. It's all wrapped up. That whole complex of activity and thought is wrapped up in just this one concept of falling away, that you will be offended by me, you will walk away from me, and you will choose instead to blatantly sin as you walk through the next few hours. And Jesus says this is to be expected because Zechariah 13.7 says something along the lines of this. It's actually in Zechariah 13.7, it's God speaking of what he will do. Jesus changes the words a little bit and makes it God saying what he is doing right now. And it is God who will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So this is God's plan to bring pain and suffering into the life of Jesus, and it's God's expected outcome that all of the followers, all of the disciples, the twelve, and everyone else, really, who they will abandon him, they will walk away, they will choose to sin. And then Jesus encourages them with this. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he's essentially telling the disciples that they will fall away into sin, that he will rise up, and that he will see them again. So even in their sin, they're not going to be rejected by Jesus. Even in their following away, he is not going to cast them aside. But instead, he wants them to understand they're going to watch him die. They're going to turn away to sin. He is going to come back to life. And then he is going to welcome them into fellowship once again. That there's not going to be some break in relationship because of what happens, but instead he will restore them. And so there should be this hope, as Jesus shares, that 
when the disciples hear his words, they go, oh no, but that's what's going to happen in the end? Yes. And so this is meant to be a bit of an encouragement as much as it is a warning. But what Peter hears Jesus say is just the first part. You will fall away into sin. That's all Peter hears Jesus say. And so Peter fixates not on the good news that Jesus is going to rise up from the dead and that he will restore them to relationship with himself and see them again. Instead, all Peter hears is, you're going to fail. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to fall short. And it's interesting to note Peter's response. Peter doesn't say to him, oh Lord, please help me to not fall away. Oh, Jesus, I know you have the power to raise up the dead, to make the blind see, to make the lame walk again. Would you please keep me from falling like that? Instead, what does Peter say? Even though they all fall away, I will not. There is no way that I am going to mess up like that, Jesus. There is no way that I am going to fail because I'm strong enough to conquer what is to come. I'm strong enough to stand up. Anybody ever kind of seen someone behave that way or maybe even felt that way yourself? Or if you have read any of the self-help books you can find in what used to be a Christian bookstore, you, um, you, you would be told pretty much the same thing. You're good enough, you're strong enough, and doggone it, people like you. And, and this is how Peter responds to Jesus. Now, can you imagine the audacity? First, Jesus is not just Peter's rabbi, right? His teacher, his leader, which it would have been wrong for him to respond to his rabbi like this, with this kind of pride, with this kind of arrogance. But Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, greater than any prophet, greater than any spiritual leader that has ever been. And Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, says to him, you will fail. And Peter's answer is, oh, you're wrong. Oh my gosh! The audacity to look the Son of God in the face and say, no, you got this all wrong, Jesus. I am not going to fail. I'm a winner. I've got tiger's blood in me. Um... Sorry, Charlie Sheen reference for those of you who are, you know, remember what was going on there. So anyway, Peter responds with this self-righteous, this completely self-focused answer of, but I can do it myself, Jesus. I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to fall short. And too often we as Christians have the same kind of mindset when it comes to sin and failing. But we'll talk about that a little bit more later. And so Jesus responds to Peter so simple, so lovingly. He says to him, truly, listen, Peter, I'm not lying. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not like speaking metaphorically here. Truly, amen. This is how it's going to be. I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, You will deny me three times. Now I want you for the rest of this morning to remember the number three. Because the number three is going to play a significant part in the rest of 
what we look at today, and it's actually going to play a significant part in the rest of Peter's story that we'll look at next week as well. And so, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me. And, and the word deny there, this isn't just, you're going to say, oh, well, no, I mean, you know, I don't really follow him like that. But this word really is disown. In other words, utterly reject me. Peter, you're not just going to fall. You're not just going to fail, but you're going to fail spectacularly. And you're going to do it three times before you hear the rooster crow twice. Now, it's interesting to see, once again, Peter's response. But he, Peter, says emphatically, and emphatically, that is not just, no, I I just don't think you're right, Jesus. I I mean, I think I have it in me to do well. But Peter is arguing with Jesus, and he is certain that it is true that if I must die with you, I will not deny you. It doesn't matter if they want to take my life. I will never deny you, Jesus. I will never fail like you said I will. I will never fall short. I will never sin. I am on your side, and I am going to be victorious in this. And what's interesting is all of the disciples said the same thing. So what we have here is Jesus setting the stage for his followers and telling them, you will fail, I will rise again, and I will restore you. And Peter and the other disciples saying, no, we will be successful. We will do it in our own power. We will be victorious. And then stuff begins to unfold a little bit further. Mark tells us that after this, in, uh, this, this dialogue between them, that they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So they're on the Mount of Olives. And Mount of Olives, you might th- wonder, why would they call it the Mount of Olives? So just, I'm going to let you guess. Why do you think they called it the Mount of Olives? Olive trees, where you grow Olives, right, and, and not the, the little green ones with the pimentos. No, we're talking about, you know, like black olives and rich and full of oil. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and we call it the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is actually a picture of what is today's Garden of Gethsemane. But the word Gethsemane, it, it actually means oil press, And so Jesus and his disciples were on the Mount of Olives and they went to this small garden, this small set-apart place where they would harvest the olives and then bring them to Gethsemane and the olives would be pressed to get olive oil out of them. And if you know anything about like extraction of olive oil or treading grapes for wine, you know it it is a violent process. It it takes time and pressure and, and you get from it the most beautiful of products, but it is, it's hard work and it's painful and it is grinding and, and, and turmoil, especially for those poor little olives. It's interesting to think about 
what is to come in the life of Jesus in these next few hours. Jesus, he will be crushed, he will be pressed. And expressed from him will be salvation for all who will, be, who will believe. This beautiful anointing, this beautiful end product. But it's going to take some crushing. It's going to take some pain. And the Garden of Gethsemane is like this microcosm, this little picture of the turmoil and suffering that Jesus will experience in the next few hours. And he invites all of his disciples to the garden, and many of them sit outside, and, and he asks them to sit there and pray while he goes in to pray. And then he grabs Peter and James and John, his inner circle of disciples. Peter being likely the oldest of the disciples, James and John being brothers, and John likely the youngest of the disciples. And he takes Peter and James and John, and he takes them with him into the garden, and he begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, you need to understand that Jesus knows what is ahead. Remember, he has known what's coming for a long time. Just in the the discourse of of Mark, just in the the way it's laid out, we know all the way back in chapter 8, a year and a half or so before, he's already talking about he will give his life for many. He will be sacrificed for mankind. He knows what's coming. And so he is on this night before his crucifixion in the garden of pressing. He is troubled and distressed. And he says to these three, Peter and James and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. All I want you to do is sit here and watch. I just want you to pay attention to what's going on. I want you to be alert. I want you to be with me. And, and the other gospels tell us that Jesus went further into the garden about a stone's throw away. And, and the disciples could see him, Peter, James, and John, they could see him praying. And yet we'll see, and we already have seen really, what their response is to his request to stay awake. This Sorrow, this anguish, it's reminiscent of what was penned in Psalm 55, verses 4 and 5, a a prophecy of the Messiah to come. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. A lot of times we don't think of Jesus in this way. We don't think of him as frail like this. We don't think of him as afraid like this. But the truth is, he was distressed and troubled. He was sorrowful. Even to the point of spiritually feeling like he was dying. And I I want you to catch that. that Jesus didn't just walk into his crucifixion like, I'm here, let's do this thing. But instead there was sorrow. There was this this separation from from reality. There was this, "I, I, I can't wrap my head around what's coming, Father. I'm scared. And so when we think of Jesus, it's so important for us to understand that this was not some sort of nonchalant sacrifice, but this was a troubling experience for our Savior. 
Not because of desire to, to follow after the Father's will, which we'll see in a moment, but because this was a genuinely scary experience that was ahead of him. So Peter, James, and John are left a little ways into the garden, and Jesus goes a little bit further in, and he falls on the ground and he prays. And he asked that if it's possible, that the hour might pass from him. The hour, when we look throughout Jewish literature, it's, it's, it's about judgment. It's about the wrath of God. And then Jesus begins to pray. He says, Abba, Father. Now, these are two different words that express similar sentiments other than Abba is like Daddy. It's a, it's a more personal and intimate way of addressing Father God. And then Father, the official title, if you will, to whom Jesus is praying. It's a, it's a both-and relationship for, for our Savior, both this intimate connection to Father and also an absolute respect for that first person of the Trinity. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Jesus didn't have this notion that only a few things were possible or that God could only do a few things, but instead he knew of God the Father's absolute power and he asks, remove this cup from me. And this cup, it is a picture, it's a metaphor, it's a symbol of suffering. It's a symbol of sin and God's wrath poured out upon him. And so Jesus is looking ahead and he knows what's going to happen. And he says, my dearest Father God, you can do anything you want. Can we please do this a different way? Can we please? I'm scared. I already feel dead on the inside. I, I, I don't know how to handle this other than to walk in obedience to you. And so even as I ask for things to change, for the plan to be, you know, revised, not what I will, but what you will. Ultimately, I understand. You could change things in an instant. You could do anything you wanted, but if this is the plan, I want to be faithful to it because I know you'll get me through it. What we see is, is Jesus telling the Father, I know you can do anything you want. Please, please take away this need for suffering. I know what I wrote there. See, you guys are reading my slide and going, that's not exactly what it says. Please make take away this need for suffering. Sometimes when you revise something, you're like, please make the need for this go away. But then I said, I don't like that. That's too wordy. Anyway, you get the picture, right? Please take away this need for suffering. Father, could you just like send a unicorn? We'll sacrifice that and then everything will be happy. You know, a little bit of unicorn blood and some fairy magic and la-di-da, sin's gone. Look, I know you can do whatever you want. I don't want to have to suffer like this, but I want to tell you, not my will, but yours. And so we see three components to Jesus' prayer. We see praise. Father, you are all-powerful. You are good beyond measure. You can do anything. And then we see a petition or a request. Please take away the need for me to suffer. I don't want to experience this. I don't want to have to die. 
This has taken me to the very limits of my being. But finally, we see Jesus in absolute submission to the will of the Father. In absolute submission. So, Father, I know you can. Here's what I want. But your will, not mine. And so Jesus sets the stage for all of us when it comes to a place where we don't understand what's going on, where we're suffering, where we're broken. Like like the song talking about we know in a minute God can change anything and fix it. But if he doesn't, I'm confident that his will will be done and he will keep me in the way that he sees fit. This is Jesus setting the stage for us to not be like Peter. Peter who says, oh, failure's on the way. I won't fail. I'm strong enough. I'm good enough. I can do it. But instead to honestly assess our own struggles and our own needs and say, Father, I love you. I worship you. You are so good to me. You have made so much positive in my life. Please take this suffering from me. Please rescue me. But if you don't, I just want your will to be done. A praise, a petition, and submission. Now remember, I I told you to remember the number three, so this is where three begins to unfold. Jesus prays that prayer, spends some time in prayer, and then he comes back to Peter and James and John. He came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now it's interesting to note what Mark records here. And this is the recollection of Peter, remember? Peter remembers that on that night when Jesus came to him, even though he had been calling him Peter for quite some time already, in that moment... He called him Simon. Why? Because Peter was living completely in his own strength. He was living completely convinced that he was the man. And he was not worthy of his new name in that moment. In fact, we can see in his attitude and his actions, he's already begun the process of falling away. Because of his own pride because of his unwillingness to submit to the leadership of Jesus, to the the power of the Father, to the restoration that was promised. So Jesus says to him, are you asleep? Why couldn't you even watch just one hour while I prayed? Just one hour. But here's a second opportunity for you. Please watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In other words, that you won't continue down this path of pride, thinking you can fix everything yourself, thinking that you're strong enough. Would you please just spend some time following after my example? Watch and pray. He's encouraging Peter to enter into this process of praise and petition and submission so that he might not be tempted. And Jesus reminds us that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, we all have the desire to please God when we're following after Christ. We want to do right, but our bodies, our flesh, our sin nature, it keeps us from being the perfect people we think we can be. And we should expect ourselves to fail sometimes. But it's possible to overcome that temptation 
if we would spend more time watching and praying. Now it tells us in chapter 14, verse 39, that Jesus again went away. So he goes back into the garden and he prays again. And he prays the exact same words as before. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So a second time, Jesus prays. A second time, he comes before the Father and says, please, I love you, I worship you. I know you can do anything. Please change what's going on. But I submit to your plan no matter what. Luke tells us that on this second time, in chapter 22, verse 44, Luke says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So that you know that Jesus was not unaffected by this experience, Luke, a doctor, and also a very good historian, points out that Jesus was in such physical and psychological and emotional turmoil that he experienced a condition that is verifiable. It's a medical condition where the capillaries inside your sweat glands begin to burst from stress. And it looks like you are sweating blood because the blood in those sweat gland capillaries begins to mix in with the sweat and come forth. And so Jesus was so overwhelmed with with just the tension of what is to come, not to the point of sin, never did Jesus sin. Don't get that in your mind. But instead, he was completely experiencing the pain and the turmoil and the suffering and the struggle that every human being had ever experienced or will ever experience to its nth degree, its final place. Jesus was experiencing that kind of stress and turmoil. And so when we go through it, we need to understand, no matter what we go through, we have a high priest who has experienced life just like us, yet without sin. And that we can come to him when we need grace. And we can come to him when we need mercy. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Because Jesus suffered, because Jesus knows this stress and this turmoil, we can come to him when we struggle and feel like we're falling short and failing. Mark goes on to tell us, And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. So Jesus has prayed, confronted Peter, James, and John, gone to pray again and come back to Peter, James, and John. So this is two times, right? And Peter and James and John, they don't even know how to answer him. Mark goes on to tell us, and he came the third time. So it seems very clear that Jesus goes back again into the garden to pray for a third time, which is what the other gospels tell us as well. And then he came back to Peter and James and John and he says to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Three times 
Jesus prays to the Father. Three times he catches Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples, falling prey to temptation, falling asleep, being overwhelmed and ruled by their flesh. His response to them is finally, it is enough. Now with this, it is enough, we're not sure if he's saying to them, hey guys, that's enough napping. It's time for action. Or if this is a greater statement about it is enough, time has passed, history has unfolded, this is the time for me to hear what God the Father would have for me to do. It is enough. The hour has come. What did Jesus pray earlier about the hour? He prayed that it would pass. He would pray that it would never come in his life. He asked earnestly three times for his loving father to take from him this very moment, to keep it from ever happening. But then he, he, he continued with, but I submit myself to you, Father. And, and now we see the Father's answer, don't we? The Father here has given a clear answer to the prayer of the Son. And I have to tell you, that it may not be the answer you might expect. Excuse me, I am fighting the beginning of a summer cold. I don't know if anybody else gets them, but when the air conditioning kicks on for the first couple of weeks, somewhere in there, I'm getting a throat nose thing. And so um, I sound kind of tough this morning. But you can see right here, Jesus sees very clearly and understands. He's prayed three times that this hour would not come, that it would pass by him. And here it is, right here in front of him. What was the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer? No. Father, please let this hour pass. Please let this cup not be mine. And the Father's answer to the Son was no. Now, I want you to grasp that. I want you to wrap your head around that. Because the Father, in answering no, understands exactly what the Son is to suffer. He knows what's coming for His Son. And yet his answer is still no. Some of us, we have entered into seasons of suffering. We've experienced pain and loss. And we wonder, God, why did you allow that? Or why didn't you answer my prayer? And the truth is, is God always answers our prayers. Sometimes it's yes. Sometimes it's hold on. And other times it's just a flat out no. But what we see in Christ is not some sort of, oh God, why did you make this happen? But instead he walks fully submitted to the will of the Father and we see, yes, suffering and death, but we also see three days later, resurrection and eternal life for all who would believe. 
Can you understand? Can you wrap your head around the fact that sometimes no is the most beautiful answer the Father can give you when you're struggling with what's ahead of you? Sometimes no is the absolute best. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Then Jesus says to his disciples, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So as we wrap up this morning, I just want you to look at the two main players in what's unfolded today. We've got Peter. Peter, who was warned of upcoming failure and sin, but he completely missed the promise of restoration and relationship. In other words, he got so hung up on God telling him that he would fail that his pride flared up and he was just like, no way, I'm going to conquer. I'm going to do better. I'm going to defeat this sin. I'm not going to fall short. I'm strong-willed. I'm powerful enough. He responds with pride. He doesn't pray in the same way that Jesus prays. And what we're going to find out in the next couple weeks is that promise of failure, it came true in Peter's life. He falls away. He is despondent. He is destroyed. He is depressed. He finds himself struggling with with self-worth because he still failed. But it's because he thought that he had the power to overcome in himself. And he didn't. He never did. In fact, when Jesus says, you will fail, what do you think might happen? You will fail but I will restore you. I will lift you up. I will bring you back into relationship if you will come to me in faith, if you will walk in submission. See, too many of us, we've bought into the the 21st century Christian lies, Christian lies that you need to be good enough. You need to work hard. You You need to do this program to overcome this sin. You need to, you need to work harder. You need to give more. You need to be a better person. When what we see in the example of Jesus, who is coming up on suffering, who is coming up on things that are just overwhelming and destructive, he doesn't answer, oh no, I'm strong enough. And if anybody had the right to respond that way, it was the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, perfect man, perfect God. He had the the power in there to, to do it on his own if anybody did. And yet he still responds to this, things are going to happen, bad is coming into your life. He responds not with, oh, I can take it. I'm strong enough. I can overcome. How does he respond? He prays. He gets on his knees and he praises the Father and he lets God know what he longs for. But ultimately he says, not my will, but your will be done. Peter says, I can do it on my own. Jesus says, I can't do it on my own. And I need you, Father. I need you to to bring me through this. I would prefer we not do this at all. But if it needs to happen, would you be my strength? Would you be the one who brings me through? And Jesus, 
we see, we know, we know the rest of the story. He experiences suffering and pain, but what he has got that Peter didn't have is the very power of God undergirding him and filling him. Why? Because he walked in absolute submission to the will of the Father, even when it meant suffering and pain. Peter said, suffering and pain? No, I can overcome it. Jesus said, suffering and pain? Father, I need you now more than ever. And not my will, but your will be done. Peter said, not what you say of me, but what I want be done. Do you see the distinctions between what goes on here? These three different experiences. Peter is told, you're going to fail before the the rooster crows. You're going to disown me three times. And then there's this little test set up. And three times in the garden where nobody is picking on him or questioning his faith in Jesus, he fails three times to do what Jesus asks of him. And yet three times, Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father. And we see what that submission accomplished for us and for the whole world. So, when we fail, when we suffer, when it looks like failure or suffering is imminent, we can respond like Peter. We can say, oh, no, I'm going to buck up and I'm going to overcome this sin and I'm going to make it right. Or we can respond like Jesus who walked into the promise of suffering and pain by praying. And he said, Father, you can do everything. I wish it didn't have to be like you've told me it's going to be. But not my will. Your will be done. Jesus prays using that formula, that that practice of praising Father, of petitioning, giving Him a request, and then submitting Himself. And what we see is Jesus is also so focused on the promise of restoration and relationship afterwards. Jesus doesn't think the cross is there and that's it. He says the cross is there and oh, it's going to (laughs) stink, to put it mildly. But on the other side of the cross is resurrection. On the other side of the cross is life for everyone who will believe. That's what God promises to all of us. When we walk in submission through these failures and these times of suffering, as we pray to him and worship him, and as we say, please take it away, please make it right, and yet not our will, but your will be done. And we look forward to the day that even as we, if we have to go through the suffering, he will restore us. He will bring us into right relationship. And even if it's not in this side of eternity, but on the other side, where life forevermore in the presence of an amazing God, it's worth it. So when we fail or suffer, I want to encourage all of you to walk through failure and suffering and pain, not trying to make things better, not trying to say, I can fix this if if I just work harder, if I'm just a better person, if I just believe harder. No, but to sit back and say, I don't know why it's happening, but Father, I wish it were different. Not my will, but your will be done. Fully submitted to his power in your life, knowing that when he brings suffering, 
He's not surprised when pain comes in. He's not trying to figure out what to do with it, but it's part of what will unfold in your life. And sometimes he wants to rescue you from it. And sometimes he wants you to walk through it and get to the other side. But when we are fully submitted to him, good things will ultimately come. So when we fail or suffer, we want to look like Jesus. We want, to, we want to suffer like Jesus. It's real. It's painful. We're sweating drops of blood. But we're walking in prayer and we're praising and we're asking the Father for help and we're submitting ourselves to Him and we're trusting that He will take our pain and suffering and our failures and make good things out of those in the same way He made something beautiful and glorious out of the suffering of our Savior. As the worship team comes up this morning to close us out, I just want to encourage you, if you are struggling with something, if you're, you're walking through a time of suffering, if you are in a place where you're asking God why or what or how come, I want to encourage you to enter into a, some moments of prayer today and in the coming days where you practice this Three-step act of praise and petition and submission and trust that God will bring all things to pass in such a way that He will be glorified and you will grow up into Christ-likeness. He will bring good, His good, His ordained good out of what is coming in your life. And you will weather it and even enjoy his presence in it if you can walk in a place where you are praising him and petitioning him and finally submitting to him that his will might be done. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the picture of your son who in his flesh, in his body, walked a perfect and righteous life. And so we see in his struggle here, we see in his prayers, a perfect example of how we should approach suffering. A perfect example of how we should approach impending doom. Not trying to fix everything in our own little small-minded way. Not trying to stand up and be tough but instead to walk through it by praying to you in moments of praise, by being honest about our struggles, not because you are unaware, but because it helps us to submit them to you and then to ultimately join with our Savior in declaring, not my will, but your will be done, Father. We all have a perfect plan of what our life should look like. Help us to cast that aside and trust your plan for our lives. Father, you are worthy of all praise and glory and wisdom and honor and power and strength. We cry out with the elders and the cherubim, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. You were, you are, you are to come. You are everlasting from beginning to end.
You are all-powerful, all-knowing. You are everywhere present. You know our deepest fears and needs. You know our highest aspirations and dreams. Because you are so magnificent, we worship you. And today, there are many things in our lives. There are our sicknesses, there are financial struggles, there are relationship struggles and legal issues. And we don't want them to work out the way it looks like they're going. Father, if there is any way, could you change those things? Could you remove them from us? But ultimately, we long not for our own will, but for your will to be done, Father. Because we know that you can turn crucifixion into resurrection. We know that you can turn suffering into salvation for the world. We know that you can turn rejection into acceptance through your Son. And so we pray that if we must suffer, if things must go as it seems they will, that you would give us the strength to walk through it as your son walked through crucifixion and death knowing that resurrection is on the other side and restoration is to come and your name will be glorified. Not our will, Father, but your will be done. In the name and according to the example of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray this morning. Amen. Let's sing together.
at the cross where we see our Savior submitting himself to the will of the Father, suffering and dying for our sake, that we might learn what it is to submit, that we might learn what it is to give ourselves to the will of the Father. And remember, that's not the end of the story, is it? Three days later, there's resurrection, there's restoration. There is salvation for all who will believe. May you walk in a life of prayer where you praise God continually, where you lay your needs before His heart, and where you submit yourself to His will, knowing that He will bring good things to pass, even if it's on the other side of great suffering and turmoil. God bless you guys. Look forward to seeing some of you tomorrow night in Bible study, women's study Wednesday night at 6.30, uh, youth groups at 6.30 on Thursday, and then, of course, Sunday school next Sunday. So uh, 1829 is Friday night as well. So God bless you guys. If you need to talk, I'll be up front this, this morning. Uh, so just uh, come and, and find me, and I'll be happy to talk or pray if you need some time. God bless you guys. See you next week. <laughs>